0: Are the U.S. Energy Information Agency's estimates of high supplies of tight oil and shale gas extremely optimistic? Are estimates of America's ability to compensate Europe for their deprivation of natural gas in the wake of the Ukraine war exaggerated? How could these sudden shortages of oil and gas affect the way we live? What role, if any, is COVID-19 playing in the imminent mass devastation across the major powers being ravaged by peak oil and gas? This week on the Global Research Hour, with the imminent shortage of world supplies of fossil fuels due to sanctions against Russia, which includes its energy exports, we take a close look at how economies and even whole societies in the U.S. and Europe could be disrupted by sudden price increases and even shortages of this vital resource. In our first half hour, we speak to Earth scientist David Hughes about his latest study on the shale reality in the U.S. and what it suggests about the future of natural gas supplies to Europe to replace Russian shortages. Then we get hold of the author of the book, The Long Emergency, James Howard Kunzler, to talk more broadly about the imminent, immediate reality of peak oil and gas and how it would play out In Our Lives, he also touches on COVID-19 and the compromised presidency of Joe Biden. On this week's program, suddenly peak oil and gas, the cataclysmic result of sanctions against Russia. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 8, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojibwe, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. A translation of the exchange reveals that the soldier tells the mother, quote, this moron is no more, unquote, informing her that all that was left of him was, quote, his ass and a leg, unquote. The Ukrainian appeared to be using the phone that belonged to the dead Russian to call his mother. An alleged neo-Nazi Azov battalion member named Ivan Zalizniak uploaded the video and five others to his Telegram channel. The clips hardly do much to bolster the narrative, relentlessly amplified by the legacy media that the Ukrainians are the, quote, good guys, unquote. Over the weekend, horrific footage emerged of Ukrainian fighters committing literal war crimes by shooting captured Russian soldiers in the knees and watching them die in agony. That comes from the article, Ukrainian soldiers film themselves calling up mothers of Russian soldiers killed in action and mocking them. By Paul Joseph Watson, posted, April 6th, originally published in Summit News. The property sector, a key engine of growth, accounting for about 25% of the economy, has seen its foundations crumble under the weight of billions of dollars of debt. Big tech companies have bled trillions of dollars as Beijing tried to curb their excess profits and make sure the party retained influence over them. Xi's rule has come at a price. What little political dissent there was has been crushed. Political rivals jailed, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang are being persecuted, and the Taiwanese are threatened with forceful reunification. Xi's targeting of corruption is in reality a ploy to silence political enemies. That comes from the article, China, Times Are Changing for a Country That Wanted to Change, by Tom Clifford, posted April 6th. Any person who even suggests that Pfizer's Fauci flu shot is dangerous, should be designated as a criminal, Burla insisted. According to him, saying anything negative about the injections constitutes misinformation, this being a common sociopathic trait. The Pfizer document ends with nine full pages of reported adverse events, you know, the ones that Bourla does not want any criminals talking about, many of them are autoimmune-related, which makes sense in the context of vaccination. Thousands, if not millions, of people were punished for just saying no to these deadly injections. That comes from the article, Latest Pfizer Document Dump shows the company had to hire 2,400 new employees to Handle Wave of COVID Vaccine Adverse Events by Ethan Huff, posted April 6th, originally published on Vaccines.News. The video of the National Police of Ukraine, shot presumably on April 1st or, or earlier, does not really correspond to what the Ukrainian media published on April 3rd, trumpeting to the whole world that the armed forces of the Russian Federation allegedly carried out a quote-unquote mass massacre of civilians. As more photos are shared from the spot, more proofs that the scene was staged appear. As the main video proof from Boucher raised a lot of suspicions and was quickly disclaimed, it was accompanied by more fake photos allegedly Made in the town. Unfortunately, these attempts are even less effective and are evident lies. For example, notorious advisor to the head of the office of the President of Ukraine, Aristovich, published the photo of a woman tortured in Mariupol last week by Ukrainian Azov militants, claiming that she was a victim tortured by the Russians. That comes from the article. New evidences. Shed Light on Alleged Massacre in Busha, Kiev Region, posted April 6th, originally published on South Front. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. United States is offering to supply Europe with reserves of their natural gas to compensate for the loss of Russian gas due to sanctions. But a new report entitled Shale Reality Check 2021, drilling into the U.S. government's optimistic forecasts for shale gas and tight oil production through 2050, says that the U.S. Energy Information Agency's assessment of their reserves is overestimated to a huge degree. The report was written by David Hughes, an earth scientist focused on unconventional fuels, primarily shale gas and tight oil, but also coal bed methane and other unconventional sources, including oil sands, coal gasification, and gas hydrates. Hughes is currently president of Global Sustainability Research, Inc. He's a fellow of Post Carbon Institute. I first asked him to compare the last report to similar themed reports over the last decade?
1: Well, if anything, I thought this report was slightly better than some of the previous reports that they put out. Uh, basically, we're, the U.S. Uh, government and me are using the same data, which is a commercial database of all of the drilling data in the U.S. So I have access to every well, and I can look at their, the well's production over time. And, you know, basically, the U.S. government and I probably did somewhat similar things. But I, I looked at the uh, production of each play by county. So I could look at all the wells in a county and look at, at how much production came from the average well, uh, what the well declines are. Like, shale, shale gas wells decline quite quickly. Typically, about seventy percent of the production is lost in the first couple of years, uh, which kind of sets up a what I call a drilling treadmill. Because you have to keep drilling new wells in order to replace the declines, in order to keep the production of a field flat. And if you want to increase production, you have to drill even more wells. And shale plays are typically, they have sweet spots. You know, they're not uniform. So if you look at a a very large shale play like the Marcellus in Pennsylvania and uh, West Virginia, uh, you can see that out of, you know, the 25-odd counties that are underland by Marcellus, maybe five or six of them will have really high production. And you can look at the average productivity of wells over time and you know you can see several things first of all, fracking has been a revolutionary technology uh, and it's been improving over time and most of that improvement is is basically the ability to drill longer horizontal laterals and to pump higher volumes of water and fracking fluids into the formation in order to you know, create as many fractures as possible. And to give you an idea, uh, some of those wells they are pumping in 2,000 pounds of, of sand per foot uh, in order to hold the fractures open. So it's a, a pretty high-tech en- enterprise, and they're learning. But I think that that, that learning curve has pretty much plateaued. And in some places, declining. Uh, you know, basically, through the last decade, you can see quite a ramp up in the productivity of the average shale gas well, as of longer horizontal laterals and uh, higher volumes of of water and proppant that are going into those wells. But you can only drill so many wells in a sweet spot, and you run out of. You're spacing the wells too close together and they start to interfere with one another, and productivity drops. So what I did is is I looked at all the shale plays in the U.S., compartmentalized them by county, located the sweet spots uh, from the productivity of the wells, and then looked at the average production over time. And you can see that in the sweet spots of, of some of the best plays, not all of them, but in some of them, the productivity has flatlined, and in some of them, it's declining. And that indicates that they're crowding wells too close together. And you know what you have to do when you drill off a sweet spot is, is move into lower productivity rock, which means you don't get as much gas per well, which means you have to drill more wells in order to keep production flat because of the high decline rate and you know when i did this for all the shale plays in the u.s you could you could see what i call an optimism bias and some plays would have an extreme optimism bias like you know in my view there's no way that they could make the production forecast that they came up with uh, from those plays plays like the the back in, in north dakota uh in other plays they They've actually improved a little bit. You know, their forecasts were a bit more reason- realistic than earlier reports, like the Marcellus in uh, in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, which is probably the most important uh, gas play in the U.S. So, you know, I went through all the data, looked at all of the major shale plays, and uh, that was my conclusion. You know, after a careful analysis.
0: Are we sure? at this point, that there are no more hidden sweet spots in the United States that, that could compensate for the peaking sites in existence right now?
1: Uh, I, you know, I don't discount that there could be a few, but I would say that, you know, given the exploration effort that has been expended over the last 10 years, uh, probably very few. And some of the ones that we know about probably have a ways to go yet, you know, before they're basically drilled off and they have to start moving out of, out of the high quality areas. But if you move out of the high quality areas, what that means is you have to drill more wells. The wells aren't any cheaper, which means you have to have a higher and higher price for the gas in order to justify drilling those wells. So that's sort of the way I see it going, I'll be extremely surprised if the uh, U.S. Energy Information Administration forecasts are achieved Yeah, in the I, longer term. Extremely surprised.
0: Okay. Uh, I know that there, there were some uh, uh, maps or, or tables or graphs in uh, your report, which showed uh, an early peaking and then going down, but then it started to peak again but i think this is largely due to the uh there were more mines that were drilled and they were using higher pressure technology is that it
1: now you're talking about the recent past yes right?
0: yes like since 2015 for example
1: yeah you know that that's also a function of price this mm. price has peaked in uh in 2014 and the price went down, so the the rate of drilling went down, so production went down because of the high decline rates. It, you it really you have to keep drilling, otherwise production will fall.
0: Hmm. Now, um, just with regard, when you're talking about uh, peaking, the, the oil and gas sh- shale, it, it depletes rather rapidly, right? I think you said it's like 70% over the... the- the next uh well, over uh the last three three years or something 70 80 percent whereas well
1: when you when you drill a well the highest production of, of that well's life is is when you drill it right Yeah. and complete it and over the first two years i would say 70 per, the production from that well will drop 70 percent
0: yeah how does that compare to conventional oil and gas extraction? It's, uh, is it a much more gradual it's, curve?
1: Well, somewhat more gradual.
0: Okay. In order to drill into a mine, you, you need to be relatively sure of at least matching those costs by getting lots of oil and, and gas as a result. Again, how does the conventional oil and gas drilling Compare with the unconventional shale plays in, in terms of this investment of finances.
1: Uh, the shales are, are obviously quite a bit higher. You know, like a typical well in the Marcellus would probably be, you know, seven to eight million dollars to drill. You know, a, a conventional vertical well would be be a lot less. Yeah. But I mean if you look at at overall gas production in the US right now shale is probably over 70% of total gas production. The shale shale was revolutionary. It really uh I mean before that it looked like production was going to fall indefinitely. But shale turned that around temporarily, I would say.
0: Um, and and to get the enormous amounts of of gas and oil from shale, you have to expect there's a a willingness to uh, to, to build. I think you say in the report over a hundred thousand new mines in each area over the course of the the, the next thirty years. Um, how how realistic is that claim?
1: Well, no, I w- I would say it's more it's more like seven hundred thousand oh. new wells over 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 the next 30 years.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: Uh, well, you know, it, it all depends on price and availability of places to drill. Mm. And, you know, obviously the industry drills the highest quality place first. And that's what's been happening over the last 10 years. And there's still some high quality places to drill, but those who are, are disappearing fast, right? Uh, and then they're going to have to go into lower quality places.
0: I, I guess the EIA just assumes that uh, if there's still oil and energy in, in the uh, land, and I mean, there will be, but uh, who has the, the money and, and the, the energy to invest in it so that you you, you get out what you put in?
1: Well, yeah, and I think the EIA may be extrapolating, you know, the, the, the better technology forward indefinitely. So just, you know, just keep on assuming that technology is going to keep on improving, as it has. I mean, no doubt the technology has improved a lot in the last 10 years. But a lot of that improvement was in the first part of the last 10 years. it's a lot of diminishing returns right yeah
0: well i guess
1: uh, you know i think they pretty much are hitting the technical limits of how much water how much sand, how long you can drill horizontal laterals and so forth
0: well what would you say could happen to the industry if the eia were more realistic, you know, because if it were, one presumes that no one would invest and it kills a, a vital industry. I mean, could those sorts of concerns affect the EIA's estimate conclusions and calculations? Or or is that simply a, a complete separate matter from however they arrive at their conclusions?
1: Well, I you know, I think you know, the, I, the EIA is connected to the U.S. government. And the U.S. government likely, you know, feels that it would like to have, you know, secure energy for the, as long as the eye can see, right? Yeah. Uh, strategically, that's a good thing, you know, when you compare to your global competitors. So that may be part of it. Uh, I don't. I don't think industry looks at the EIA as a bible. You know, industry does their own research, mm. and if they don't have a place to drill, they won't drill. You know, even if not drilling is going to make the EIA look bad <laughs> in terms of their forecast.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of the, the EIA's conclusions, that that could feed into my next uh, question because we're entering a time, thanks to the Russian. Uh, invasion, incursion of Ukraine and the need to hit Russia with sanctions by restricting Russian, among other things, restricting Russian oil and gas supplies to Europe that, that peak oil and, and gas, um, at least in Europe, it, it, it suddenly seems like uh, that's uh, on the table. Uh, on, on Friday, March 25th, President Biden committed the U.S. liquefied natural gas industry to supply an additional 15 billion cubic tons of LNG to Europe through the remainder of 2022. The agreement additionally envisions U.S. LNG increasing that supply to Europe to 50 billion cubic tons through 2030. Russia supplies a third of Europe's natural gas supply for heat, for electricity, among other things. Given what you have relayed in your report, could you comment on this action in the US in terms of the price of energy and in terms of the supply as well as the impacts on the industry itself?
1: Well, I think that, you know, initially the US is going to be able to maybe provide 10%. They get about 40% from Russia right now. So the US might be able to make up 10%, but there's still another 30% that they're short, right? Uh, you can't build LNG terminals overnight to export LNG. You know, they're realistically, they're 30 or 40 year projects. You have to assume that they're, you know, you're know you going to get your money back over 30 or 40 years if you spend the money to build a terminal. And that's what uh, industry will be looking at. And, you know, with what I see in the longer term on, you know, certainly in the 30-year term, U.S. supply is going to be a problem because, you know, although industry may not rely on the EIA forecast, you can be pretty confident that Biden will. (laughs) So, uh, you know, the U.S. could be short of domestic gas requirements, you know, over the next 30 years and not really have a lot of extra to send to places like Europe. And in order to, you know, radically ramp up LNG exports to Europe, you know, as promised, you're going to have to uh, spend a lot of money, you know, building more terminals. There's not enough terminal capacity to send that much gas right now. And that's going to take, you know, a few years. So we'll see.
0: David uh, Hughes, is, is there anything you'd like to add in, in terms of how all of us can can cope with the, the coming energy crisis?
1: Well, I would say, you know, as Canadians, we're we're blessed with, you know, for now, anyway, with abundant oil and gas. However. Canada is a pretty mature exploration region, you know, if you look at conventional oil and gas. And really, you know, most of the oil is in the oil sands. The the oil sands is going to be the only growth in production going forward. And oil and gas are finite quantities. They're finite resources, you know, in the longer term. And selling them and, you know, shipping them as fast as possible, you know, via LNG exports from British Columbia, via exports of oil to the U.S., is maybe not the the wisest strategy, given that these are finite resources. And, you know, they're likely going to be needed at some level for the foreseeable future. And, you know... There's also the emissions aspect. It, you know, just producing oil and gas is something like 26% of Canada's emissions. Or that's what the latest report said. Yeah. So the only way to really cut that down, yeah, technology can do that to a certain extent. But reducing production, we we produce far more oil and gas than we use domestically because of exports. And I, if I were you know, running the show, I would look pretty carefully at that, Uh, you know, with a view to future generations and their requirements. And, and, you know, of course, we have to, to look at alternatives, renewables and so forth. But, you know, again, there's a huge scaling problem. There's other technical issues with intermittency and so forth with renewables. So, you know, oil and gas is a pretty important backup energy source, 84%, you know, even with all the money we spent on renewable energy over the last decade, say, 84% of primary energy still comes from oil, gas, and coal in the world. So, uh, and, and those are finite quantities. So what, you know, what happens? You know, can we build enough renewables to replace them? You know, it's going to take a while to do that. Uh, So I I would, you know, if if you have lots of oil and gas resources, I would look upon that as a a bit of a treasure chest, and I would manage them very carefully.
0: David Hughes, I really value your reports and your advice a great deal. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to share more with our listenership.
1: You're very welcome, Michael.
0: We've been speaking with earth scientist David Hughes, who's been studying the energy resources of Canada for four decades and has researched, published, and lectured on global energy and sustainability issues in North America and internationally. His report from last December is entitled Shale Reality Check 2021, Drilling into the U.S. Government's Optimistic Forecasts for Shale Gas and Tight Oil Production through 2050. It was published in association with the Post Carbon Institute. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Now that peaking oil and gas are, are back in conversation in the wake of the not so cold war with Russia, I decided to get hold of someone who's Written and spoken insightfully and extensively about these factors and the difficult years ahead in what he labels the "long emergency," James Howard Kunstler is an author, a blogger, social critic, and public speaker. He started as a journalist and has written several novels, but he's best known, I think, for his nonfiction books, including *The Geography of Nowhere*, *The Long Emergency*, and *Too Much Magic*. And he recently also wrote the book Living in the Long Emergency, Global Crisis, the Failure of the Futurists and the Early Adapters who are showing us the way forward. I have known him or known of him for 15 years now and uh, am privileged to finally connect with him for an interview. He joins us from Greenwich, New York. Thank you, Mr. Kunstler, for agreeing to this interview. I really appreciate it.
2: Why, it's a pleasure to be
0: with you. Could you maybe take just a, a few brief minutes explaining how peak oil and gas is about a lot more than just you know switching to electric cars or or better insulating your home it, it means dramatically changing the way we live.
2: Yeah it's the primary resource for all of our comforts and conveniences in modern life and it is also the uh, primary platform for creating the alt energy resources and and uh, uh, tech uh, technology that we Are fantasizing about replacing oil with, and that makes it a big problem. And uh, the scene, uh, the oil scene, has been pretty confounding for the public. Uh, I think it's it's understandable that they are uh, confounded by it because it's pretty complicated. And uh, the whole story has been full of uh, strange twists and dodges. What what happened over the last ten years is, you know, we uh, experienced this event that we call the shale oil miracle, and that followed immediately a very serious oil crisis in two thousand eight and nine, when the price of oil shot up to a a really unprecedented one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel, and of course. Uh, there's a useful equation to understand how this affects us. Oil over $70 uh, a barrel tends to crush economies and oil under $70 a barrel tends to crush oil companies. Um, And that was uh, the direction that we were heading in. We were then importing about 15 million barrels a day and we were using... Uh, 20 million barrels a day. So we were only producing something like 4.9 million barrels a day in the United States. But we started the shale oil thing in 2009. Notice it it coincided with that um, uh, great financial crisis. And the shale oil miracle was kind of a product of the attempt to uh, fix that crisis using quantitative easing and zero interest rate uh, financial policies. And uh, so you got a you got a a tremendous amount of investment that went into shale oil after they demonstrated that it could be done. And they really ramped up the industry very quickly. People were investing in it because of zero rate interest uh, policy, uh, zero interest rate policy. Um, They couldn't get decent uh, yields on traditional investments like U.S. Treasury bonds. So they were looking towards more unorthodox targets for their investment. And shale oil was the big thing. It promised tremendous returns. So we ramped up production. And unfortunately, the one major thing that they demonstrated over that 10-year period was that they couldn't make a dime producing all of that shale oil. We produced a tremendous amount of shale oil, and it was a tremendous financial stunt, but it was a stunt, nonetheless. What we accomplished was we uh, exceeded the nineteen seventy previous American peak uh, of oil production, which was around ten million barrels a day, and we got all the way up to just under thirteen million barrels a day in twenty nineteen, but. Uh, You know, then coronavirus happened, along with its many disruptions, and it also disrupted the oil market uh, very, very deeply. Yes, true. And by that time, uh, you know, 10 years had gone by, and it was now evident that the oil companies could not make any money producing shale oil, and that it was basically a lousy investment. Or yeah. people, you know, for for just people looking to stash their money somewhere that was productive. So you just and, explained. You just wait, ex- a minute, I'm not finished yet. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. The ca- see, the catch here is that having proved that they can't make money at it, now it's very hard for them to get more investment to continue their operations. So despite the fact that they w- got very good at this trick of producing oil out of uh, impermeable shale rock. The fact is that the, the, the amount of capital that they need to accomplish that is no longer available. And uh, let me put it another way. Uh, the, the old conventional oil wells, like you got in Texas and Oklahoma in the 1950s, those wells cost about uh, $400,000 in today's money to drill, and they produce thousands of barrels a day for decades. Okay, so they were like running a cash register. Shale oil wells cost between six and twelve million dollars each to drill and to frack and to do all the operations. And they produce about 100 or 200 barrels a day, not thousands, for the first year, after which they deplete by 60 percent. And then three years later, they're totally gone and you have to look elsewhere for a new shale well. So that sort of explains the geophysics of it all. Um, It was a great stunt, but it's kind of coming to an end and it's going to start winding down now, unless we do something really extreme like nationalize it and totally subsidize it. Otherwise, shale oil is going to be uh, declining probably pretty swiftly. And, uh, you know, it will hardly be an industry anymore in in five or ten years.
0: Yeah, well, like you say, as a, just kind of a stunt, I mean, it doesn't really follow the, the normal rules of supply and demand, right?
2: Well, it does, it does in a way, but, but uh, the, it, it's more a matter that the business model for producing it just doesn't pencil out. You mm-hmm. know, you, it costs millions of dollars to drill and frack these wells. You've got to run all of these water trucks to places like West Texas, where there's very little water, And all of these trucks with the sand and the chemicals that you need for fracking. And it's tremendously expensive. And then you have to, you know, get rid of the uh, wastewater. And, uh, you know, when when all is said and done, you're not making money at it. And if you're not making money at it, it's not a good investment. And uh, the investors are going to not put their money into it. So it's really it's really about uh, a shortage of capital, a scarcity of capital that we're facing. And uh, that scarcity of capital is going going to affect a whole other, a whole lot of other things in our society.
0: Russia has launched a military attack on Ukraine. Uh, they say to demilitarize and denazify the country. NATO countries didn't like it and are now waging economic warfare against Russia by issuing sanctions. And one of the instruments in play is boycotting their natural gas. Thing is that. The EU imports a third of its gas from Russia. The US say they will bail them out by supplying 15 billion cubic tons of natural gas this year, uh, exploding to 50 billion tons in 2030. And I, I think we both know that that there's uh, that's not going to be sufficient and not over the long haul, and certainly not you know competitive price wise. Is is Europe? essentially shooting its nose in order to spite its face? I mean, are we looking at... It's
2: cutting off its nose to spite its face, as the old proverb goes. Yeah. And, you know, it's completely idiotic. Um, The whole idea that America is going to uh, compensate for their their oil is insane for the following reasons. Um, uh, The only way we could do that would be by shipping liquid, liquefied natural gas. Uh, Natural gas... Uh, has to be compressed at very low temperatures in order to liquefy it and get it into a tanker. Moreover, the tankers have to be specially built tankers that are basically refrigerated tankers. Uh, that, adds, that adds a lot of expense to the shipping. You know, oil is different. Oil is shipped at room temperature. But not, not the case with natural gas. So it's very expensive to ship and they do not have sufficient natural gas terminals in uh, European ports to receive it. And they wouldn't have the terminals for probably a couple of years, because it would take that long to build them if they could come up with the capital to do it. But the whole project is insane anyway, because the gas costs too much. So uh, Europe has really put themselves in a terrible predicament, and uh, you know th- they very quickly ended up screwed. And one of the first manifestations of that is that uh, it was announced in in the news uh, this this week that food prices in Germany are going up by twenty to fifty percent virtually overnight. So Ouch. they're in terrible condition uh, economically all of a sudden, and you know they've moved rashly and stupidly, and uh, you know the Russians have played it pretty cleverly, and the Russians are now. Uh, because the United States and Europe has basically destroyed the international trade payment system, which was based on uh, the SWIFT uh, uh, clearance system for clearing trades. Now that we've succeeded in wrecking that, the Russians were already in position to work around that, and they are going to work around it with another system. Moreover, they're going to for, when, when the Europeans finally get their head screwed on straight, they're going to force the Europeans to buy uh, natural gas with rubles. And in order to buy and, and because of the, the um, sanctions, they can't buy rubles with euros. So what are they going to buy them with? Well, they can buy them with gold or they can just pay for the oil and or the gas in gold. And. Um, what that means is that Russia is building a gold-backed currency system, which is going to be a potent payment system, a potent currency, and uh, whatever else it does, it's going to detract from the power of the U.S. dollar and its position as the world's reserve currency. Probably pretty quickly. You know, uh, Russia uh, is also in a position to sell a lot, a, a lot of that oil they were sending excuse me, a lot of that gas they were sending to Europe, to China and other countries. So uh, that, that that whole sanctions thing was about the stupidest thing you could possibly cook up. <laughs> Unless you wanted to destroy, uh, you know, the Western economies. Yeah. <laughs> which is like, possible. Well, Russia also supplies the
0: world with 10% of crude oil. If If the world shuns their oil, then we will suddenly be Confronting peak oil, right? I mean, that might be a different expect experience than the idea of getting more and more expensive as time goes on until until it starts uh, slowly one by one affecting people.
2: How would- well we 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 really are at peak oil in the sense uh, that that uh, we're we're definitely at peak per capita oil, but you know what's really gone on in the last uh, couple of years has been aside from the from uh, the business model of shale oil being broken. Uh, The other thing that's going on is the distribution uh, system has been uh, interrupted and broken. So right now we're mostly experiencing a a change in in distribution systems that were kind of working. They were held together with bailing wire and and duct tape, but they were kind of working for a while, and now they're not gonna work at all for as far ahead as we can see. And uh, it, it basically means higher oil prices, higher prices for anything made out of oil, like fertilizer, uh, and, and um, probably uh, shortages and scarcities in various places on a spot basis.
0: just joined us. I'm speaking with James Howard Kunstler. He's the uh, author, blogger, and uh, the uh, social critic, and uh, the author of the, uh, the Long Emergency. And we're talking about, uh, I guess, peak oil and gas in uh, 2022. Um, James, Another subject I wanted to bring up with you is COVID-19. I mean, the the response to this virus was to shut down economies, lock down people in their homes, and and vigorously encourage taking the vaccine. There was high incidence of vaccine adverse reactions. Uh, It's documented by the CDC as alarmingly high, although the CDC and other experts claim they cannot Verify that every single reaction and death is due to the vaccine and, and continue to insist the vaccine is safe and efficacious. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are among those who believe it, it that it's an intentional killer as
2: opposed to a well, an- I, I, I don't believe necessarily in the plannedemic idea. Uh, okay. I'm not persuaded that that happened, but it's definitely a public health fiasco. It is a tremendous fiasco, and uh, the uh, public health authorities—you know, the CDC, uh, the uh, FDA, the NIAID that uh, is run by Anthony Fauci—and uh, and and other uh, institutions, as well as the pharma companies, uh, have been doubling and tripling down on their errors so consistently that it's hard to believe that they're not deliberately trying to kill people for example we know quite well that this is not a safe vaccine that it causes a lot of uh, uh, causes a lot of injuries many of them permanent and it, it has killed a lot of people from the side effects from you know from vascular damage and uh, 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 carna- or cardiac uh, Damage and damage to other organs and and neurological brain uh, injuries and there's just a huge number of of uh, injuries and deaths from this out there and yet the authorities Rochelle Walensky at the FDA is still on TV pitching uh, boosters and vaccinations for people I think that 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 means that they've crossed cross the line into criminally negligent homicide, and that they're gonna have to be held accountable for it. I don't know how that's gonna happen, because unfortunately for the last several years, we've, we've become a culture in which anything goes and nothing matters. There are no consequences for any of the uh, misconduct that has gone on by institutions and individuals. Well,
0: how do you say, I mean, they, they say that you've got to follow, they keep saying follow the science, you know, listen to us, follow the science. I mean, is there something other than science that's uh, directing
2: them to? Uh- the, the critics of the critics of the vaccines uh, and the critics of, of much of the behavior in response to the COVID-19 uh, affair uh, are following the science probably better than the people who, you know, in public health and it's an insult to uh to science uh, what what public health has been doing is an insult to science itself
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah well i'm just wondering i mean you you say you don't think that it's uh, uh necessarily something that's conceived but i i'm just thinking in terms of the uh the fact that there's we're seeing that based on fossil fuel the, the explosion of the use of fossil fuels over the, the course of the 20th century, that there was a similar explosion in human populations. I mean, they, you know, fossil fuels, f- fuel fertilizer, for example, you know, uh, natural gas. And yeah. as that f- fossil fuel starts to diminish in supply, you will similarly see uh, uh, an effect on on human populations. And I'm, I'm thinking from the standpoint of the, uh, you know elites i guess you know the world economic forum or uh, you know st- people like that that you're you're going to be looking well what should we do should we go out and let tell people what's going to happen or would they maybe think of putting in place some sort of a a mechanism uh, like i don't know a biowarfare or or death by vaccination or or a combination of the two that would you know probably you know, be the best choice. I mean, that that's what I would tend to think. But what, what you, I'm just wondering before well, I find
2: it very hard to take the uh, W.E.F. and Klaus Schwab very seriously, because, uh, you know, Klaus Schwab is too much of a cartoon of a James Bond villain. <laughs> you know, he's sitting there in his bunker with a Persian cat cat on his lap, uh, you know, sneering at the world uh I, I don't really buy that story although uh, i I do believe that there are people obviously Bill Gates has talked about how important it is to reduce the population, and you know he's enough of a you know semi autistic Asperger personality that maybe he you know he, he he you know it's very easy for him to act like a sociopath or a psychopath about that but uh i I think that the uh Covid nineteen thing it might have been a deliberate release. It might have been something that the uh, that the uh, Chinese uh, CCP wanted to inflict on the west. Um, it could have been a lot of things i I'm not persuaded necessarily that it was those things. Uh, the strange part is the the uh, precisely coordinated behavior of so many nations in response to the pandemic. You know, the the fact that Australia, New Zealand, uh, Austria, Germany, France were all doing lockdowns, Italy, you know, all doing the same kind of lockdowns. The fact that so many of these countries instituted vaccine mandates in exactly the same way at the same time, it's a little bit weird. And uh, it makes you wonder how such a thing could be so coordinated. You know, one theory is that uh, social media uh, acted in a way as as uh, an infectious uh, viral agent itself, and spread this this these typical responses from country to country, and and leadership to leadership, and population to population. So uh, I I still tend to be a, a bit allergic to conspiracies, uh, and uh, but it, you know it's hard to look at the big picture and not get the feeling. That somebody wanted to get a lot of people dead, mm-hmm. and right now, especially when there's so much information coming out of the life insurance companies about uh, all causes death rates, and uh, you know, you we we've uh, we've learned recently that the uh, millennial generation has suffered uh, about sixty thousand all causes unusual deaths from in the last. Uh, 16 months or something and that's uh, almost equal to the number of people that that my generation lost in the Vietnam war and that's an impressive number of people mm. so uh uh you know it's uh it, it's a situation that could make a lot of people pretty paranoid mm.
0: yeah um so i also have a question i guess this is uh, maybe more related to the 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 government's in play because you have the you you had uh ukraine um and and, and essentially it looks as if they're, they're really ferocious uh, the the americans and, and nato about getting a cold another cold war started you know and then we're gonna do something to to get you know basically like every like even the, the starting of the war itself it seems and and i guess the third this this could lead to a, a third world war, but maybe it won't. But I mean, the, the, this talking about, you know, escalation to, to nuclear power, What? but that would el- eliminate, uh, you know, a, a lot of what Henry Kissinger described as the useless eaters, you know, timed right after COVID. But uh, I, I'm just wondering if, uh, if you see these two events connected in any way. I mean, not to keep you on the... Uh, Conspiracy theory track, but uh, you know it just seems like going from one to then to the next with hardly any, you know, you
2: know like a total. Well, you know, off. as they say, correlation is not causality. Right. All right. So um, you can just present sort of the circumstances uh, here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's pretty self-evident that the uh, that our country, or are you a Canadian or American? A Canadian. Okay, my country, the USA uh, really wanted to provoke this, uh, uh, incident in Ukraine, this, this operation in Ukraine. For one thing, uh, we, you know, we managed to send a whole lot of money and a whole lot of weaponry over to Ukraine in the last eight years or so. Uh, you know, ever since the, in, ever since the, uh, 2014 Maidan uh, revolution that we sponsored, that the State Department of the CIA sponsored. So we've sent all this uh, uh, we sent all this war material over there and trained a lot of Ukrainian uh, uh, army people. And they went over to the Eastern boundary of the Donbass and spent eight years shelling the Russian speaking population over there. Uh, they were Ukrainians, but they were Russian speaking. And uh, obviously that, you know, it, uh, Mr. Putin was pretty patient about that. But after eight years, he said enough is enough. And he he went in there to stop it and to disarm Ukraine and to make sure that it never became a uh, part of NATO. And uh, that was another thing that our that my country and that President Joe Biden could have done at any point along the line in January and February, he could have declared that Uh, Ukraine will not be a member of NATO. And that would have been a start, at least uh, in negotiating uh, what was going to happen. But he didn't do that either. So it's clear that Joe Biden and whoever is behind Joe Biden, because we know that he doesn't function very well, (coughs) we know that uh, they wanted to start this war. Now, the thing that, that I see happening is that the war started at just the time when the news was coming out that tremendous number of people were being uh, were dying from reactions to the uh, COVID-19 vaccines, and it seems possible to me that the Biden administration wanted to distract the nation from that story because uh, you know obviously it's incriminating and and it would open up a tremendous can of worms. Also, they probably saw coming coming up very soon uh, the breaking of the Hunter Biden, uh, you know, bribery and, and influence peddling story, which in fact has now broken, and in fact is now an active case in the Department of Justice. It's a tax case for now, but I don't know how they're gonna get around just prosecuting him for tax payments, you know, Uh, there's too much other stuff there uh, and it's all out in the public arena now. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that they, I don't think Hunter Biden's going to get away with, with any of this. And I don't think Joe Biden is either. So it seemed to me to be, uh, you know, an opportune time for them to distract the country with this, uh, uh, you know, by provoking Russia into their cleanup operation in Ukraine.
0: Yeah, I noticed that
2: it was the New York
0: Times that broke the story, and like they're they, the the official orator of, of actual news. I mean, and but you know, they, there's it, it seems strange that it broke that story at this time. I mean, because normally they they can sat on this story for uh,
2: quite a while. Yeah, they sat on the story for two years, and then they. And, but you know, let's remember, you know, they they published the story about Hunter Biden's tax case. The whole idea. The, the story had a number of uh, purposes. One was to uh, acknowledge the fact that there was a federal case uh, that was open against Hunter Biden, because they could no longer deny that. Um, but they downplayed the, uh, the, they downplayed the whole uh, Hunter Biden laptop thing by not admitting that it was a reality until like the 22nd paragraph of the story. So, you know, that's called burying the lead of the story. Mm-hmm. And they did that. Uh, so, you know, uh, a lot of people probably didn't read down that far. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it was in general, it was a matter of the New York Times working to protect President Joe Biden mm-hmm. with uh, highly spun and somewhat gamed news. Wow. Well, Mr. Kuntzler,
0: I'm afraid I'm right out of time, uh, uh, so I have to close, but I really enjoyed having you on, and, and hopefully we can connect again at, at a later
2: point. Yeah, anytime, and uh, I'm sorry I was late to the, to the recording. <laughs> no worries. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you very much, Michael. We will ride again.
0: That was James Howard Kunzler joining us from Greenwich, New York. He's author of several books and of the blog Cluster F Nation. You can reach this and other features on his site, K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R That closes our show for this week. Next week, we'll have a repeat broadcast, and then in two weeks, an episode dedicated to Earth Day from the non-corporate angle. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalisation and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Creek, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca.